The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The title of my sermon this evening is Hitting the Wall, and we've got a great text to look at. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 6, so go ahead and turn there with me now. And while you're turning there, I'll kind of set the stage for where we want to go with things. At this point in our study in the book of Joshua, the children of Israel have crossed over the Jordan River. If you'll recall, God miraculously parted the Jordan River, and now they've taken their first steps in the promised land. The time has finally come for the Israelites to take possession of their inheritance. But in order to do that, it required that they had to drive out the inhabitants of the land. Now, the first obstacle in their way, the first city that they came to was a city called Jericho. Now, those of you who grew up in Sunday school are no doubt familiar with Jericho and Joshua, who fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Josh fought the battle of Jericho. Okay, so we know the story. And of course, the thing to note about Jericho is that it was surrounded, archaeologists tell us, by a series of menacing, big, and seemingly impenetrable walls. Now, here's the thing about that. If you live long enough, you will reach a point in your Christian life where your forward momentum gets stopped by an obstacle. Something will stand in your way. You will hit a wall. For Israel, it was a physical wall. For you, it'll probably be something else, but you will run into a wall. Now, for those of you who are runners, this is a metaphor that you're familiar with. Do we have any runners in the house tonight? Okay, some of you love running. The rest of us don't get you, right? I mean, I have friends that run, and they're always like preaching the gospel of running to me, and they love to talk about the runner's high. It's, oh, you got to experience the runner's high. I've run a lot, and I've never experienced the runner's high. Amen? The only things I've ever felt while running are pain and nausea but I digress. Those who run, they talk about the runner's high, but another thing you'll often hear runners, especially long-distance runners, talk a lot about is hitting the wall. And when you hit the wall, supposedly your legs feel like they've been filled with cement. It's a state of utter and complete exhaustion. Picture a car that has run out of gas. That's what they say it's like. And of course, you know as well as I do that you don't have to be a long-distance runner to know what it feels like to hit a wall. If you're a parent in here, you've hit the wall a time or two, amen? And if you're a student in here, you've hit the wall a time or two. If you are a spouse, if you're married, or if you're in relationships, you've hit a wall or two. By, By that measure, if you have a pulse, then you have hit a wall or two in your life. And you know you've hit it because all your energy and vitality and desire to press on are gone. Some of you have been there. Others of you, you're there right now. You're barely holding on. You're trying to hang in there. But the only thing that you can see is this big old wall staring back at you. It's right in front of you. And you've tried to scale it. You've tried to go around it. You've tried to pull it down. And so far, nothing has has worked. And so the question is, how are we supposed to deal with the walls the obstacles, the things that stand between us and our divine inheritance as believers. 
It might be a spiritual stronghold in your life. It's that thing that you can't get past. And, and so that's the question I want to look at with you this evening. And with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into our text. Look with me at verse 1. It says, now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. <laughs> then, then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. Now, as we get started, the first thing I want you to notice is how we have before us two very different contrasting pictures. The picture that we see in the first verse is of a fortified city. It's a picture painted of, of strength and stability and impenetrability. It mentions things like gates and bars and locks and security. Nobody's going out and nobody's coming in. So that's the first picture. And then in verse 2, God paints a very radically different picture when he says, see, I told you, I've delivered Jericho into your hands. Now notice how the Lord speaks to Joshua there in the past tense about this battle. He said this before a single arrow had flown, before a, a battering ram had been deployed, before a, an army had engaged. He said it before any of that. And the Lord didn't say, I hope to deliver Jericho into your hands, or I will, future tense, deliver Jericho into your hands, or I could deliver Jericho into your hands. No, he said, I've done it already. It's past tense. It's a done deal. And he spoke as though the battle had already taken place. And then he asked Joshua this question. He said, do you see it, Josh? You got to see it. And I want to key in on that word for a few minutes with you. Because we have these two pictures, a fortified city in the one hand, and then this, this picture that God paints of victory. And Joshua had to choose. He had to choose between trusting what he could see with his physical eyes or trusting in what God had said to him through his word. And, and the, the choice set before Joshua that night is the same choice that you and I must make on a daily basis. You see, all of us have to choose whether we are going to be led and governed by what we can see with our physical eyes or if we're going to choose to be governed by what God has already declared to be true in his word. You see, God is asking us tonight to see things the way that he sees them. And of course, this is where problems arise. <laughs> because if nothing else, this world conditions us from an early age to only believe in things that we can see with our physical eyes. After all, sight is one of the main ways that we interact with the world around us. We live in a physical world, and one of the primary means by which we interact with that world is through our eyes. Now, our eyes are incredible engineering marvels. Let me just geek out on this with you for a moment. Like, I read this past week, and this was in my son's book that we read before bed. It's uh, 3,000 Weird Facts, Weird But True. And this fact said that with every second that passes, your eyes are processing over 120 million bits of, of information. Every second. Here's how it works. As light hits your retina, special cells called photoreceptors take that light and they turn it into electrical impulses. Then these electrical signals 
carry that if information from your retina along your optic nerve to a place in your brain called the occipital lobe. Once there, your brain takes the signals, turns them into images, and then flips them upside down because when you see the world, you see it upside down. And so your brain has to flip it right side up for you. And then the images that are painted in your mind, they're in your occipital lobe. That's what we call seeing. Now, that's a process that we almost never think about, but it's, it's staggering. I mean, vision and sight, this, this thing we call seeing, is, is so incredibly complex that it accounts for two-thirds of your brain activity. So it's absolutely mind-blowing. But as incredible as our eyes are, we have to admit that they also have certain limitations. You see, there are things that our eyes can't see. We can't see ultraviolet light. We can't see radio waves. We can't see things that are really small, like bacteria. Now, all of those things I just mentioned are obviously very real, but our eyes have limited capacity. Now, let me tell you something else that our eyes are absolutely worthless for. That's seeing in the spiritual realm. You see, the Bible is very clear that just on the other side of this universe, this world that we live in, the physical world that we relate to with our five senses, there is a very real spiritual realm. And there are things called angels, and there are demons, and there are various rankings, mites, and dominions, and powers, and there's a heaven, and there's a hell, and there's a God, and there's a devil, and we can't see it with our physical eyes, but the Bible says that it's very, very real. It's more real in many ways than the physical world around us. Now, that poses some problems for us. How are we to relate to this spiritual realm, the spiritual world? Well, God hasn't left us without faculties. He's given us faith. This is why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, prays that God would give those Ephesian believers eyes of understanding. Lord, open the eyes of our heart, he prays. Why? Because as believers, we're told that we don't walk by sight, but we walk by faith. And so what those verses are telling us is simply this, that what your physical eyes are to your ability to interact with the physical world, that's what faith does for you in the spiritual arena. But it's not something that comes naturally to us, which is why it's something that we have to develop. It's something that we have to continually work at and build up and grow. It's like a muscle. After all, we live in a world that is driven by the creed, I'll believe it when I see it, right? But the thing about God's kingdom is it's driven by a whole set of paradigms that are completely contrary to the, the way the world works. God asks us to believe it first before we see it. I love this verse. This verse is so cool. Psalm 27, verse 13. David says, I would have fainted. He's saying, I would have lost heart unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Did you notice the, the way he switched those words around? He says, I would have lost heart unless I had held on to faith and believed I would see it. I'm not seeing it yet, but I believe I will see it. This world says, I'll believe it when I see it. In God's economy, he says, believe it and then you'll see it. That's how faith works all the time. Faith trusts what God has said, even when it doesn't line up with what we can see with our physical eyes. So that's how jo uh, God could say to Joshua, even though he's staring at bars and gates and walls and locks. He could say, see, I've given it to you. I've delivered Jericho into your hands. 
He could say it because in the spiritual realm, the victory had already been secured. God had promised this land to the Israelites 400 years earlier when he promised it to Abraham. And every promise is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Now, this concept that we're talking about here is something that I believe is so key. It's so foundational to walking in victory in our spiritual lives. Listen, this is so key. I'm convinced that one of the main reasons that many of us don't experience more victory in our lives is because we're looking at things the wrong way. We're locked into looking at things and our situation from merely an earthly perspective. We're we're staring at all the gates and all the bars and all the locks, and we're fixated on the walls, and God is calling us to worship. And and you're saying, "But, but look at those bars, and God's saying, but focus on the blessing." You're saying, look at the gates, and God's saying, I've promised you glory. You're saying, look at the the walls, and God says, I've given you my word. And so for some of you, you keep praying for victory in some area of your life. You're praying that you'd see this wall come down, and God is saying, I need you to stop praying for that victory and start praising me for the victory that I say is already yours. I love 2 Corinthians 2.14. It says this, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. You know what that means for us? It means that God leads us from faith to faith, from glory to glory, from now until then. He completes the good work that he begins in us. He says we're more than conquerors through Christ who strengthens us. And so you have to see it that way. So let me ask you right now, in a very practical way, do you see your prodigal son, your prodigal daughter, back home walking with the Lord? Do you see yourself walking in victory? Do you see this city set on fire for Jesus? Somebody say amen. Amen. You got to see it. Now, now I don't want you to misunderstand me and go all new age on me. And and the new age adherents will, will teach their people, like, if I can see it, I can believe it, then I can achieve it, you know? I believe I can fly, you know, Michael Jordan. No, it doesn't work like that. This isn't just kind of like visualize the, the perfect reality you want to create. No, no, no. This is aligning your heart and your spiritual eyes with what God has already declared to be true about you in his word. It's standing on the promises of God. Those are two very different things. So that's the first thing we've got to do if we want to see our Jerichos toppled. We've got to learn how to see our situation through the lens of heaven. And sometimes in order to do that, you've got to close your physical eyes in order to open the eyes of your heart and say, God, give me your vision for my life. Give me your vision for this situation. And that's the first step. And it's truly essential, but it's not enough. If you really want to walk in victory, if you want to see walls come down, then you also, after you've done that, you need to step out in faithful obedience and take possession of what God has given you. And that's what we're going to read about in verses 3 through 5. So here's the Lord. He's talking to Joshua. He said, see it? I've delivered it into your hands. Now, here's what the plan is. I want you to march around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. And then on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up. Everyone straight in. So God doesn't just merely tell Joshua to visualize the walls falling. 
He also then asks him to go out and march around the city. Now, before we can go any further, we just have to stop and pause and acknowledge what a crazy plan this is. We've all heard it a million times. We're familiar with this story, and so we're a little numb to it. But can we just stop and acknowledge the fact that this is a crazy idea? And I bet God got a kick out of sharing it with Joshua. After all, Joshua is a military man, right? And so he's, he's used to strategizing and planning and maneuvering his men into optimal positions on the battlefield in order to give them the best chance of success. So hearing the Lord's plan must have shocked him. And God, I'm sure, got a kick out of it because God's got a great sense of humor. He made us, right? I mean, march around the city, grab some trumpets, and then the walls are going to come down. Seriously, like, that's the plan, God? That doesn't sound much like a plan to me. If anything, it sounds like a suicide mission. But again, this is God's way of building that trust, of growing that faith. It's God's way of asking Joshua to put feet to his faith. You see, it's one thing to say, I believe in God. I believe he's given me this victory. I believe he's given me this promise. But it's another thing to step out in faith and to circle it with your life. I'm a big fan of prayer walking, and there have been a number of things and times in my life where I, I prayer walked around a neighborhood or a house or a location or a building or, or some situation, and it's amazing to me how that just builds my faith. And so in a very real sense, that's what God is doing with Joshua. He knows that real faith is always more than just an intellectual exercise. It's an action work. Faith moves. Faith responds. Faith does. So that's why God asks Joshua to do it this way. He wants to grow his faith. Now, let's look at the first word of verse 6. So that's the Lord telling Joshua what the plan is. And the first word of verse 6 says, so, 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 so Joshua. And a lot hinged on what followed next. I mean, what are we going to read here? Did Joshua argue with the Lord? Did he balk at the battle plan? Did he look for a way out? No. If we read on, we find that thankfully Joshua obeyed the Lord. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and he said to them, take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carrying trumpets go in front of it. And he ordered the army, advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. And when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord covenant followed them. And the armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. And all this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua obeys the Lord. And then at this point, as he shares the plan with the people, I love to try to imagine the, the puzzled looks on the people's faces as he shared the plan. Guys, here it is. I've heard from the Lord. And here's how we're going to take out Jericho. We're going to march around the city. And then somebody get some trumpets, because we're going to need those. And I'll clue you in on the rest of the plan later. And that's all he says. And I can imagine some people scratching their heads and maybe one brave soul in the crowd raising his hand and saying, Joshua, I'm sorry, I must have missed part of the plan. I heard the part about marching around the city, and then I must have misheard you. Did you say tanks or trumpets? 
He's like, no, you didn't mishear me. I said trumpets. We're and he's like, really? Like, where? What about the battering rams? What about the F-16s? What about the lightsabers? What, where does that fit into the plan? And Joshua's like, no, 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 we're not going to use any of that. And the guy says, oh, like I said, it's a crazy plan. But as crazy as it was, somehow Joshua managed to get everyone to go along with it. Now, there's a couple of details that Joshua adds to his instructions that I want us to consider here. The first thing I find interesting is how Joshua was adamant that the people not say a word while they marched. Now, I think he had a very practical reason for this. You see, Joshua had been there 40 years earlier. He was one of the 12 spies that went into the land and came back to give a report. And what happened? The 10 spies came back with a negative report. And all it takes is one negative person, one negative word, one negative Nancy or negative Nathan. I'm not picking off you if your name's Nancy or Nathan. But one negative word to spread like wildfire throughout the entire camp. And so he's like, oh, I'm not even playing games this time. And so he says, y'all need to shut up and just march around the city so he doesn't even give them a chance to talk. And then the other thing I find curious is how when Joshua shares his plan with the people, he doesn't tell them how many times they're going to have to walk around the city, nor does he tell them how many days they're going to have to do it. He simply tells them to advance and march around the city. Interesting, because I think that would be a helpful bit of information, don't you? But there's no place in this text where Joshua says, we're going to have to do it this many times in this many days. Now, God says that to Joshua, but Joshua doesn't share that with the people. Now, for you math whizzes out there, six days, you march around the city once. Then on the seventh day, you march around it seven times. And so that's a total of, you're worrying me here, people. That's 13 times. And if I'm the one helping you with math, we've both got problems. <laughs> 13 laps that God tells his people they're going to have to, or God tells Joshua, they're going to have to walk around this city. But Joshua doesn't tell them that. Of course, it would have made things easier, but he doesn't do it. He just tells them to keep marching. And I'm sure there were a number of times throughout the week when they wanted to quit. I mean, day after day after day, they're marching around the city in silence. They're looking at each other. They're kind of throwing each other these eyes like, you know, and they march and then they get back at the end of the day and they're like, this is it. They go to bed. They wake up the next morning. Joshua's like, great job yesterday, everyone. Let's do it again. And they get up and they march around the city in silence and nothing ever changes. For seven straight days, they get up and they march. And for seven straight days, they see zero results. In the same way, some of you are sitting here, and you're thinking to yourself, man, if I knew the plan, if God would just give me the details, if I knew how many more laps it was going to take before I saw things change, if I could just see one brick fall, if I could just see one iota of change in my spouse or in their heart or in my child or in my coworker or in my boyfriend or girlfriend or in my parents, if I could just see a sign of change, if, if I only knew, then I would be able to hang on. And if I knew change was coming, if I knew my situation was going to get better, if I knew things were going to improve, then I could keep the faith. But man, all this marching is wearing me down. And for a lot of us, it's the grind that's getting to us. And life, man, it's just, it's a grind, isn't it? And some of you of you have been walking in circles for a long time. For them, it was seven days. For you, it's been seven years. For them, it was 13 laps. For you, it feels more like 1,300 laps. 
And at this point, you're wondering, how much longer am I going to have to walk around these walls? Because I don't mind walking around if I know where we're going, but I feel like I've just hit my wall, and I don't know how much I have left in the tank. And if that's you, then, then let me just say to you, this is God's word, Galatians 6, 9. Don't grow weary in doing good. For at the proper time, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Amen. Don't grow weary in doing good. For at the proper time, you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. You can't give up. Don't you dare stop. And here's why it's so important that you keep going. If you do stop, you might forfeit the miracle that God was about to do in your life. Like, what if Israel had stopped marching on day four or day five or day six or lap 12 or lap 11? What if they had stopped short? Then they would have missed out on seeing that miracle. And I wonder if there are miracles that God is waiting to do in your life, but he's waiting for you to march. He's waiting for you to step out in faith and in obedience. And so let me just encourage you again, don't stop. Keep marching, and I know it's hard, and I know it's been a long time, and I know nothing's changed, but you might be on day seven. You might be on lap six. This thing might be about to go down, and you just got to keep going. I feel the spirit of Dory coming upon me. Just keep swimming, friends. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. little Finding Nemo reference for those of you who are not sure what's going on here. There's an old story, and I'm told it's true. I don't know. Preachers tell stories like this one. But it helps illustrate the point. The story is about a, a man named R.U. Darby. And this was back in the late 1800s. And at the time, Darby's uncle had gone to West Colorado during the gold rush days to seek fortune and fame. And he bought a mine, and then he returned home to enlist the help of his nephew, who happened to be R.U. Darby. So together, they returned to Colorado, and they began to work the mine. And initially, things went well. They were quickly able to recoup their costs and cover their, their debts and all of that. And they were hopeful as they continued to drill. But as time went on, the mine dried up and the vein of gold ore that they had been following disappeared. For weeks, they continued to drill and try new spots with no luck. And of course, without the gold coming in, the bills started to pile up and they started to go deeper and deeper into debt. And eventually, Forlorn and heartbroken, they were forced to sell their machinery and their mine for pennies on the dollar. Now, the guy who ended up buying the mine told them that he intended to take the machinery and break it down and sell it for a small profit. But after buying the mine, before he did that, he went out and hired a mining engineer to take one more look at the mine to determine if it had truly dried up. And the engineer's findings were truly shocking. He found that the vein of gold or that Darby and his uncle had been following, the one that had dried up, it picked up again just three feet beyond where they had stopped drilling. So, of course, this guy then went and drilled there, and he became wildly rich, all because he kept going where Darby and his uncle had quit. There's an obvious lesson there for us. Don't quit. How many of you are three feet away from seeing that breakthrough that you've been praying for for three years? That wall is getting ready to come down, and I want to see it come down with you tonight. So let's finish up our story, and then we'll celebrate together. Jump down to verse 15. Verses um, 8 through 15 just talk about how they do the same thing every day. And then on the seventh day, 
something significant about seven. There's a lot of sevens. I think that number seven shows up 11 times in this uh, chapter. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and they marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on the day they circled the city seven times, the seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you this city. And check this out. Jump down to verse 20. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. When the shouts went up, the walls came down. Say that with me. When the shouts went up, the walls came down. Let's say it again. When the shouts went up, the walls came down. I love that. And what was their shout? It wasn't just like a, Aah! oh, that was pretty cool. <laughs> oh, we're going to do it again in a minute. Believe you me. It wasn't just a shout. It was a, it was a declaration of faith because the whole time they're marching, God is growing them. He's stretching them. He's building them. Their faith is growing. They're hearing the taunts of the people, but then they're remembering God's faithfulness from the past, and it's building their faith, and it's building up inside of them. Seven days of silence will do that to a person. They were ready to say anything. And so they let their cry go, and as their praise went up, the walls came down. Now, some people read this story and immediately conclude that it's fantasy, because it's physically impossible to shout so loud that a wall comes crashing down. Now, first of all, if you can get past Genesis 1-1, then you shouldn't have any problems with the rest of the Bible. Because if God can create the heavens and the earth out of nothing, then the word impossible gets thrown out the window. But beyond that, we don't even have to deal with that because we know that it wasn't their shout that brought down the wall. And the reason we know that is because very clearly in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told this, it was by faith that the walls of Jericho came down after they marched around the city for seven days. Amen. The shout was a representation of their faith. The faith not only caused their walls to come down, it's faith that is going to bring down the walls in your life too. Listen, in the natural realm, you might have a mountain sitting in front of you. It's not just a wall, it's a mountain. But what did Jesus say? He said, if you had faith the side of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be moved and cast into the sea, and it would obey you. In the natural realm, you might be surrounded by enemies. But if God would just remove the scales from your eyes like Elijah's servant, Elisha's servant, then you would see that what feels like you're surrounded, actually, it's your enemies who are surrounded right now. Your situation might feel hopeless, but with faith, you know that nothing shall be impossible. You might look out right now, and all you can see are gates and bars and locks and walls. But what did Jesus say? The gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. So our prayer tonight is this, Lord, give us faith. Open up the eyes of our hearts. Help us to see the victory that you have already secured for us when you went to the cross. 
Because that's where the walls came down, the walls that barred us from God's entry point and his access to his throne. Jesus dealt with our sin then and there, and now we just need the strength to keep marching until he brings every word to pass. He's already fulfilled so many promises in this word, and it gives us faith and, and, and confidence that even though we're moving into an uncertain future, we, we are doing so in the hands of a, a very capable God. And he holds us in his hands and he says, I'm not going to let one of you go. And by the way, if you look closely at those hands that are holding you that John talks about in his gospel, you'll see that they have nail prints from where he took the spikes for you and for me. And so you know his love for you is perfect and he'll never let you fall. So we trust him. We raise a hallelujah. We raise our shouts of praise. We raise our faith. And as our faith arises, the walls must fall because the gates of hell can't prevail against us because we are the church. And Jesus, you said, I'm going to build my church. You bled for the church. You died for the church. You love your church. And you're coming back as a bridegroom for his bride, the church. And in the meantime, our prayer is Maranatha. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.